Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Two hallmarks of the Christian gospel we proclaim are amazing grace and unconditional love. In song and prayer, in our teaching and witness, these are the central themes of the good news that we profess God offers to us in and through Jesus Christ. Amazing grace and unconditional love. But what does it mean? What does it really mean to live graciously toward others? What does it tangibly look like to love unconditionally? As our Lenten sermon series reflects on some of the more surprising and misunderstood sayings of Jesus, we come this morning to what are, without a doubt, some of the hardest words Jesus ever speaks to his followers. It's a teaching that flies in the face of what most consider common sense, let alone fair practice in our relationships, especially with those who wrong us. Yet before the reality, the reality of people who work against us, and take advantage of us, persons who may even go so far as to become our enemy, Jesus is about to lay out the most concentrated articulation of the Christian ethic of grace and love found in the New Testament. And what we are about to hear isn't mere idealism, an attitude, posture, code of conduct to which we aspire, and hopefully, fingers crossed, one day might actually live by. No, what we are about to hear are the the concrete, tangible directions by which we follow Jesus, not just with our lips, but through our actions. What Jesus is about to share is is a subversive, offensive, rallying cry, a rallying cry of protest and resistance against the status quo, even as it also serves as an invitation to walk the talk of what we pray. For the will of Christ, for the kingdom of God, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have that Bible passage open. Let's hear from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. It reads, Jesus said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy, or excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus begins with a quotation from not just one 
But three Old Testament passages, the admonition, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is first stated in the book of Exodus, and it's then repeated in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's a principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that represents one of the oldest laws in human history, known as the lex talonis, or the law of retaliation. The establishment of this rule marks one of humanity's first moves from a violent, lawless mob of rival tribes into a society of laws aimed at justice and equality. Before the practice of unchecked vengeance as a response that quickly escalated out of hand such that whole tribes and villages ended up in war against one another, which in the end only assured their mutual destruction, Lex Talionis established the precept of, again, limited retaliation. If you knock out my tooth, I have the right to knock out one of yours, only one, and I can't break your jaw in the process or cut off your hand instead. The very notion that the punishment should fit the crime remains part of the foundation of the modern standard of all civil, penal, and international applications of justice today. But particularly for Israel, this code of conduct was given by God as law to them as an emerging nation of people who had just been enslaved for the last 400 years in Egypt, where any and every act of aggression against their masters always was, always was repaid with an even more violent response. The principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was mandated for the Israelites to curb the cycle of abuse and violence they had learned from the Egyptians, rather than to encourage and propagate it. And over time, this practice of lex talionis was modified in Israel to allow the injured party to receive monetary compensation instead of inflicting physical injury in kind on one's offender. However, by the time of Jesus... As Israel lacked national autonomy, but instead remained under the boot of the Roman Empire, the question was, does this rule of law still apply? Or, in the face of ongoing oppression, is it acceptable to overthrow Rome by any means necessary to fight fire with fire? And Jesus, as he often does, reframes the issue. Rather than addressing how to deal with an evil empire, Jesus focuses on how to deal with an evil person. In short, you heard it, Jesus teaches us not to resist. A better translation of that word resist in its original language, Jesus teaches us not to oppose or set against the person who wrongs us. And then Jesus elaborates on this command by providing three culturally relevant examples from his day to show us what he means. And these examples we're going to look at more closely before we endeavor to better understand what Jesus is trying to teach us. So first, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. You might miss this, but Jesus' emphasis on the right cheek implies a backhanded strike less of an out-of-the-blue physical assault, and more of what was considered a traditional expression of a calculated insult, a public display of disdain or contempt for another person. This is where we get the idiom, a slap in the face, from, where a word or action is intended to offend or upset another person. Now, whereas the typical response to being insulted in our common day lives is to return the insult, Jesus, you heard it, directs us to turn the other cheek, to absorb the blow rather than to return it in kind. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he proposes a second example. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
hand over your coat as well. Now, in the ancient world, every person, every person had two major garments of clothing. A long, lightweight, underneath shirt with sleeves, which was then covered by a loose-fitting coat. A coat, by the way, in which one slept at night. Now, in those days, it was possible for someone to sue you for the very shirt on your back, but not your cloak. Per Exodus 22, Deuteronomy chapter 24, even if one was awarded another person's cloak, it had to be given back to that person each nightfall so they wouldn't be left exposed in their sleep. Jesus, however, before the person who's unfairly or wrongly taken us to court, Jesus instructs us differently, not just to give them the shirt off our back, but to stand naked before them by offering the only other piece of clothing we have. Jesus has one more example. His third and final example, final example is this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The practice of conscription, forced labor, was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. A Roman officer or soldier could require anyone within the empire, no matter what their circumstances, to carry their burden for them for a mile. Looking ahead, it's under this provision that Simon of Cyrene is required to carry Jesus' cross. And such compulsory service was quite oppressive. Just to kind of get us in the zone for this, get a feel for the difficulty. Imagine health per permitting. Consider carrying a 20 to 40 pound burden for a mile. Consider also having your schedule interrupted, being forced to go out of your way, and in the end, finding yourself drenched in perspiration whenever you finally arrive at your original destination. Enforcing this required act of subservience was a public display of control by the Romans over those whom they had colonized. And as a regular practice of imperialist exploitation, it was thoroughly resented by the Jews. Yet instead of balking at this, Jesus directs those who follow him to offer to go the extra mile after having been being forced to go the first, to endure the first. So what's going on here? What exactly is Jesus teaching us? As always, let's begin by clarifying what Jesus isn't saying. For example, Jesus, through this teaching, is not making a prohibition against the use of any force by governments and their agencies, such as the police, an army, or the court system. No, in a broken world that is not the way it's supposed to be, the Bible repeatedly validates the role of government in enacting justice through the establishment and enforcement of laws that regulate and guide human behavior, including holding accountable those who threaten or harm the well-being of others. And while both human governments and their enactments of justice will always be flawed, since they are populated and administrated by broken, imperfect people, nonetheless, biblically, the establishment of law and order remains necessary for a society to flourish rather than flounder amid chaos and anarchy. But what Jesus is teaching here, what Jesus offers us, is not public policy. You might have noticed Jesus in this teaching focuses on individual and not corporate responses to wrongdoing. More specifically, if you're really paying attention, he's directing those who would follow him. 
In other words, this is a word of orientation and direction for Christians. Jesus is modeling for those who follow him how they are to live and relate to others. One-on-one, as fellow children of God, even if the other children of God don't know it yet. Even if they don't recognize themselves as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus isn't calling us to be doormats or punching bags. To be clear, turning the other cheek does not mean accepting abuse in what is supposed to be a loving relationship. I hope I'm not speaking to anybody this morning, but I want to be absolutely clear about this. Jesus does not desire, Jesus does not in any way command those who are being victimized in any way to keep their mouths shut and to stay in dangerous, abusive situations of any kind. And God forbid if anybody is hearing this and that applies to you, I am telling you Jesus says to get out of there now. And again, to underscore this, this isn't just Pastor Chris saying, well, that's what Jesus said. Consider Jesus after he preached his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember that one? Good, good boy makes good, goes back home, preaches his first sermon in the synagogue. You remember how that went? Didn't go too well. People in his hometown were like, who, what, who is this kid? Who is this guy? They get so upset, we're told they take Jesus to the edge of town and they propose to stone him to death. Did Jesus go, well, okay. Did Jesus resist? You bet he did. We're told he walked away. So Jesus here isn't calling us to be doormats or punching bags. Jesus is teaching us to resist by not retaliating, by not trying to even the score when others wrong us. Evening the score. Evening the score. Evening the score is a popular preoccupation these days for some people. Gotcha. We all tend to operate in our daily lives out of a personal sense of justice. If I were to have a conversation with you individually, what's wrong? What's right? You get fired up. Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. I'll tell you what's right. I mean, these days, everybody's got some, something to say about that. We all operate in our daily lives out of a personal sense of justice. And when someone wrongs us, our inclination is to get even, to hold them accountable, to teach them a lesson, to punish them by returning their own sins back to them. We may even try to justify striking back at another person with scripture. You don't say. Well, you know what the Bible says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's only fair. Just doing what the Bible tells me to do. But Jesus here declares We have totally missed the point when the Lord gave that standard through Moses. That God, in giving us that law, wasn't pronouncing open season on aggressors by their victims and their allies. The Lord wasn't authorizing taking the law into our own hands. The Lord was seeking to stem the tide of violence and vengeance. But doesn't God care about justice? Righting the wrongs? Of course God does. Look around us. Our creator has authored a world where every action has a consequence. Notice how Jesus in this teaching acknowledges the reality of evil. 
More than this, did you notice Jesus passes judgment on the one who wrongs or violates another by calling them an evil person? My friends, we worship a God who purposes for what is good, and that includes the pursuit of justice. That which is not good in our lives in this world needs to be answered. It needs to be reconciled for goodness to prevail. Restitution and reconciliation, righting what is wrong, is part of the work. It's part of the reason for the cross of Christ. But the point and the message of the cross are that of a God who in willingly offering himself in Jesus Christ for all the sins and brokenness of this world, a God purposes to stem the tide of human violence and vengeance by redefining our sense of justice, not as retribution, but as restoration. And that kind of justice that rights the wrongs without adding, perpetuating all that is wrong, that kind of final Ultimate, complete justice belongs to God alone. And so Jesus calls us, calls those of us who say we follow him, not to return the insult, not to hold court and mete out our own personal sense of justice, not to get even, not to get our pound of flesh. Still, if we're locked in, perhaps we're wondering, isn't Jesus, through this teaching of non-retaliation, isn't Jesus, though, creating a license to justify oppression and violence against those who are in the minority, powerless people of any kind? Absolutely not. You might notice, Jesus doesn't give any third-person examples where the other person is insulted, robbed, or exploited. Jesus, in other words, doesn't teach us, hey, if someone slaps your neighbor's cheek, offer them your neighbor's other cheek as well. Let's not forget, Jesus defended the woman caught in adultery. Jesus stood up against the neglect and abuse of the outcasts and the marginalized. Jesus advocated for those who were being economically being, t- economically being taken advantage of by cleansing the temple of the money changers. Jesus is calling us as individuals, individuals who again follow him. But make no mistake, Jesus is also calling the establishment into question. But he does so by directing those to who follow him, by directing those who follow him to change the system to reflect the kingdom of God one person, one encounter at a time by relating to others in an entirely different way than is normally practiced. And this becomes even more clear as Jesus, after describing what you might call a series of very specific, painful, and even possibly one-off examples of being wronged, the insult, the court case, the conscription, Jesus goes from those very three specific examples, and did you notice he offers a more general code of conduct in everyday life for those who follow him? That's apart, notice that it's apart from any response to a slight or an offense. Jesus says, give back to the one who asks of you. And by the way, the language here is stronger. Give back, give to the one who begs of you is closer to what Jesus is saying here. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And just for fun, in Luke's gospel, in Luke's recording of this teaching, Jesus also adds, and don't expect anything in return. If we haven't realized it yet, 
Jesus is pushing us well past the default posture in which we are most comfortable. Reciprocity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. I'll give to you as good as I get. In the first three specific examples, and now with this more general principle, get ready for it, Jesus isn't simply calling us not to get even. That's not where we stop. Jesus doesn't say, don't, you, don't get even. Jesus, if you're listening carefully, calls us to go beyond the law, to go beyond what is fair, and to give to others more than is required, to give them more than they deserve. And there's a word for this. Perhaps we've heard it before. Grace. Grace, by definition, is generously giving to another person what they haven't earned, what they don't deserve. And grace, grace sounds wonderful in theory. Wonderful. I love getting more than I deserve. I love getting what I haven't earned. And I, ideally, theoretically, I, love to, I would love to give you that. Grace sounds wonderful in theory, but what Jesus is doing here is showing us it's more challenging in practice. Because what makes grace grace, what makes grace true, is not practicing it when it makes sense or when it's fair. What makes grace grace, what makes grace true, is extending it when it's exactly the opposite. When it doesn't make sense, when it isn't fair, when it isn't merited. But this is precisely what Jesus is outlining. True grace in practice, going beyond the law, beyond the limits of what is required, and generously giving to others what they haven't earned, more than they deserve. Beloved, Jesus is spurring us to let go, to go beyond solely operating out of some legalistic sense of fairness. To go beyond operating out of some radical self-assertion of our rights. How many times do we say, that's not fair. I want my rights. Jesus is calling us to go beyond both of those kind of statements and mindsets and instead to give ourselves away to lay down our rights, all for the sake of the redemption of the other person, even if that person is the person who has wronged us. Well, that doesn't sound very fair. I don't like that at all. That's not fair. It's not fair. Anyone want to argue with me? Is it fair? It's not fair. It is entirely unfair. It is. But then again, God in Christ is not fair in how he relates to us. I mean, after all, we don't get what's coming to us. We don't get what we deserve. Instead, despite all our brokenness, despite our limitations, Despite our failures, despite our wrongs, both accidental and willful, 
Despite all that, we are freely given more than we deserve. We, in fact, are given more than we could ever imagine or hope for. For God in Christ, first in his birth and later in his death, empties himself of his divinity, all for the sake of redeeming and restoring the fullness and abundance of our eternal value and worth. That's grace. And grace is not fair. If you're a person who's all about fairness, then grace isn't for you. And again, we, we shorthand the gospel a lot. We make it sound really easy. Just give your heart to Jesus Christ. But if no one's ever told you that, you can give your heart to Jesus all you want. But if you've given your heart to Jesus based on what's fair, you haven't given anything to Jesus. Because grace ain't fair. And if you're a person who's all about fairness, if right now you're sitting here going, <laughs> and I know somebody is. Somebody's like looking through their Bible. I'm going to find a way to, this is not right. If you're a person who's all about fairness, then grace isn't for you. Jesus goes on in this passage. He pushes still further. You know, you're like, okay, this is hard enough. But Jesus pushes still further. And he pushes still further as he calls us to be rooted in what is the very foundation of this true grace that he's just defined. And what is the foundation? What is the basis of this grace this true grace, defiant love, defiant love. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is very interesting to me. Interestingly, the first part of this quotation is from Leviticus chapter 19. Love your enemy, Leviticus chapter 19. But the second part, hate your enemy, you won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not biblical. And while it's not biblical, Jesus includes this clause because it had become a common interpretation and understanding of the original command. Love your neighbor. You see, from the outset, all the way back in Leviticus, when that command was given, from the outset of love your neighbor, the original command had always begged the question of the exception to the rule. Okay, but who then is my neighbor? You might remember Jesus gets asked this question because it was a hot one. We have a, who's my neighbor? And what happened over time from Leviticus is as the Jewish social and cultural context became more diverse, most became convinced that neighbor had to refer to a fellow Israelite. Of course, it's got to be a fellow Israelite. And in fact, this teaching was so strong that those were our neighbors and those are our enemies. The hatred of foreigners became so institutionalized, many Israelites came to perceive they were honoring God by despising anyone who was not Jewish, who didn't acknowledge or follow Yahweh. That doesn't sound familiar today at all. Why is it? Why is it we always reason the other side of a burning passion for God is a burning passion for everything opposed to God? My friends, the problem of hating our enemies is the development of self-righteousness. We forget 
where we started. We forget where we'd remain, where we'd be apart from the grace of God. Jesus, however, corrects any such false assumptions, rebukes any notion that following him is about expressing zeal against the enemies of God. Jesus, it's worth remembering, never answers. Search all four Gospels. Jesus never answers the question of who is my enemy. But elsewhere in the Gospels, as I alluded to a moment ago, Jesus only answers the question of who is my neighbor. And if you remember his answer to that question, he answers who is my neighbor by pointing to a declared enemy of the Israelites, a Samaritan. But it's better than that. Because Jesus doesn't just point to a declared enemy of the Israelites, a Samaritan, but in pointing to a Samaritan, he's pointing to someone who isn't just viewed as the enemy, he's pointing to someone as the example of the neighbor who aids his enemy. Because Samaritans felt the same way about Israelites. And likewise, with this command, Jesus frees us from love based on any calculations or distinctions between our neighbor and our enemy as he removes any classification of division and proclaims a love without limits. And in so doing, you heard his logic, his reasoning, loving without limits. In so doing, Jesus reminds us of who we are by the grace of God. Children, sons and daughters of our heavenly father. You will be like sons and daughters of your heavenly father. And just, Jesus goes on, as God allows the sun to shine on both the evil and the good and life-giving rain to fall on the just and the unjust, just as God, who has the power over life and death, provides life-sustaining conditions even for those who are diametrically opposed or in denial of him, Jesus shifts our focus from operating out of labeling others as either our neighbor or our enemy and instead directs us to engage everyone, everyone, out of the graciousness and the unconditional love by which God embraces all the world. Reflecting God's generosity, we are to share rather than to stunt the universal accessibility of God's grace. We are to love without limits, without impartiality, and thus to love like God. Then almost as if he's reading our minds, right? Jesus challenges how we define what love is. Where we define love as an expression of affection and friendship toward those with whom we have something in common toward those who treat us well. Speaking into the context of his day, Jesus muses, <laughs> you know, it's funny, even your so-called enemies, you know, those so-called enemies, those guys you hate, the tax collectors, you know, those ones that you commonly review as morally bankrupt, double-dealing, traitorous, you know, those guys, they love their own tax collector friends. And Jesus' point, in case you missed it, is love practiced solely in-house, Within our circle, that's no better than. That's just equal to those whom we judge and despise as our adversary. Or as we might say, that's the pot calling the kettle black. Jesus doesn't call us to love our enemies in the same way we love our nearest and dearest. 
Jesus doesn't call us to love our enemies the same way we love people for whom we possess this spontaneous, natural, instinctive love where there is no effort required to love them because we just do. I have two children, you know them, Emma and Ethan. I don't always like them. But I can't help but love them. You can do whatever you want. They have done many things. They're really good kids. But they've done things at times that have pushed me to, I really don't like this. But it's never taken away my love for them. I love them. I just do. Jesus isn't calling us to love our enemies in that way where we just have this spontaneous, natural, instinctive love. There's no effort required to love them because we just do. This kind of love we can handle on our own. We don't need God to love those who love us. We don't need God to turn the other cheek, give them the shirt off our back, or go the extra mile, or pray for those who we just love. And Jesus here isn't invoking romantic love. Jesus here isn't invoking family love, buddy love, Emotional love, what Jesus is invoking here is divine love. And divine love is a deliberate, intelligent, determined, actionable love. It's an act of the will. Divine love is the expression of invincible goodwill toward another person outside of how we feel about them. Apart from what they do or don't do for us. I want to make this again clear. Jesus doesn't call us to love the actions or words of our enemy. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, or God, God, God and Jesus are both opposed to all forms of injustice, abuse, and oppression. Remember, Jesus again calls out evil by name. No, what Jesus is ultimately asking for is his followers to love as he loves. To love as he continues to love us. And what is that love like? The love of Jesus is a love that isn't limited only to those who are in his family. The love of Jesus isn't a love that's limited to those who are of a like mind. The love of Jesus isn't for those who follow the rules. The love of Jesus isn't a love that's limited only to those who return love back to him. No, the love of Jesus which is why Lent is so important that we reorient and remember the love of Jesus is a love that embraces the ones who betray him with a kiss. The love of Jesus is a love that embraces the ones who deny him three times by swearing and looking away. The love of Jesus is a love, is a love that embraces those who abandon him in his deepest hour of need. The love of Jesus is a love for those that embraces those who ridicule and mock him in his suffering. The love of Jesus is a love that embraces even those who nail him to a cross and put him to death. The love Jesus calls us to embody, again, is the love of God for all the world. And this kind of love is impossible on our own. And that's why, well, divine love like that Love is an act of will rather than an expression of just friendship or affection. That kind of love, unconditional love, is only possible if grounded in, it's only possible if drawing from God's love for us. And that's why Jesus in the same breath directs us to pray. Because the only effective way to begin to love our enemies, 
due to their hostility towards us or our hostility toward them. The only way to begin to love our enemies is to pray for them. And prayer is a broad subject, but let's just unpack this a little bit when Jesus says to pray for them. What do we mean by pray? To pray the way Jesus is calling us to is to ask for and seek the strength of the Lord. To pray the way Jesus is calling us to is to yield and surrender ourselves, open ourselves to the transformative power of the Spirit. To pray like this is to open ourselves to the Spirit to bring about what sounds like a miracle. Love them. The miracle of being able to love someone to whom we are opposed, to whom we are at odds, to whom we might even be at war. To pray like this is to invoke the God who excels at such miracles. The God who excels at unexpected reversals and surprising transformations. So if you pray, be careful because God will answer that prayer. And might I suggest that's why many of us go, I think not. I'm not going to pray for them because they, God might actually make that happen. Remember, jo uh, who said Jonah? Jonah? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. And what happened to Jonah? You remember Jonah's story? He delivered the bare minimum message. God saved Nineveh, and Jonah was finching and faunching at the bit, getting a really bad sunburn, watching it all go down. Because it wasn't fair. No love in Jonah's heart, because it wasn't fair. And I'm sorry, despite what they told you in Sunday school, that story just ends. You know, everyone's like, oh, Jonah, Jonah came back, he got, he, you know, he repented and came out of the big fish, whale, whatever. Yeah, he repented, and then he went right back to where he was. And the story doesn't end with Jonah going, Lord, I've seen the light. Nope, Jonah's sitting there getting torched by the sun going, God, you suck. <laughs> you suck. If you pray for your enemy, you're praying to a God who brings about miracles, a God who relishes the unexpected, reversals, surprising transformations. But to pray this way, as Jesus calls us to, is to pray this way, is to mouth the very words of Christ from the cross, whose petition was offered to, up to heaven, not in a cursory way. And by the way, our Bibles don't give it the fullness of this, not as a one-time prayer. Jesus doesn't just say once, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The tense of the verb when Jesus is praying is he's continually praying it. As he's gasping for breath, as he's feeling life come out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It's not a, okay, I'll, fine, Father, forgive them, they don't know what I'm doing. I prayed it. To pray the way Jesus is calling us to pray is to pray and mouth the very words that he gave for us from the cross. And such prayers, Jesus helps us here, begin, such prayers begin, where do I start? Begin as Jesus directs us with the willingness to greet our enemies with the words of peace. When Jesus goes on and says, if you just greet your own people, what good is that? Even the pagans do that. What's Jesus referring to here? Well, the traditional Jewish greeting was shalom alecha, or alechem, plural. Shalom alecha, alechem. Peace be with you. And once again, in Jesus' day, the ongoing debate 
was as to whether that sacred blessing, peace be with you, which invokes the name of God, should be indiscriminately applied to pagans. Well, Jesus clarifies that such a greeting is a benediction, a form of prayer that's meant for everyone, even one's adversary. Where do you start by praying for your enemy? By praying peace be with you. Jesus concludes this teaching with a very hard word for us at first. He concludes everything he said by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And at first it may sound as if Jesus is demanding us in this moment to fall in line, get in step, and follow him without any trouble or stumbling at all. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not so. I mean, if we just even step back before we talk about the, the, what he said, Everything about how Jesus frames this entire lesson demonstrates he understands how difficult and challenging taking this step can be. That sometimes people wound us so badly, so badly that being able to forgive them, let alone learning to love them, takes time. And that's why the Greek word that's translated into English as perfect here. It refers to completion, the completion of something. It has the idea of maturing towards reaching a goal or purpose. If this makes sense to you, and it makes sense to me, so if, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll understand my brain. The word that Jesus is using here, the connotation of perfect, it's more of a with word. It's about the expansion of ourselves and of our reach more than it's a height word about the levels to which we must climb and advance. To help further unpack this word, Jesus saves us. But, and I, I try to emphasize this a lot in my preaching and teaching over the time I've been here. Jesus' intention in saving us is more than getting us into heaven. We have to stop making that the end all be all of the gospel. Because Jesus' intention in saving us is more than getting us into heaven. Jesus' intention in saving us is, in fact, to make us complete, fully matured human beings. People who have fulfilled the purpose to which God has called them. People who have become the people God created them to be. Discipleship. Following Jesus, therefore, is not about perfecting ourselves. Following Jesus is about being matured, being perfected by our Heavenly Father, becoming complete in the goodness, in the grace, in the love of God. And God certainly knows that that's a process that takes time. Jesus doesn't tell us to be perfect right now and then also follow him. Jesus says, Follow me so that I can mature you, so that I can make you perfect, so that I can make you all that you were created to be. So that when you arrive at the destination of salvation that we tend to focus on, it's not going to be a big leap. It's going to be the rounding of the circle of the journey of your entire life. Amid a world of jagged edges and broken people, getting even and defending my rights by any means necessary seems like common logic these days, and it certainly has become, I'm sad to say, business as usual. In the moment, thoughts, words, acts of retaliation as a reaction may feel right and good. They might even seem fair and justified. 
We can even tell ourselves, they started it, we're only finishing it. But the problem is, as we remain in that cycle, it's never finished. The cycle of retaliation only creates, only reinforces the enemies we have. And my friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way Jesus saves us. And this is not the way Jesus calls us to follow him in living out our salvation. Jesus' repeated refrain, as we've heard over these last few weeks, his repeated refrain as he teaches us is, but I say unto you, and that phrase of coming from the mouth of Jesus, but I say unto you, is a performative, creative, divine word that enacts what it proclaims. Words that come from the mouth of the living God create something out of nothing. Words of the living God do not fall empty. They fulfill the purpose for which they are spoken. There is no cheap talk. There is no empty talk that comes out of the mouth of God. So when Jesus says, but I say unto you, this is a performative, creative word that enacts what it proclaims. Because this Jesus is the word of his lessons made flesh. Jesus is the one who embodies what he teaches us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus is the one who enables, who empowers his instructions to become a potential reality in our lives. Because in surrendering to his Father's will and not resisting his enemies, in turning the other cheek by showing mercy and asking his Father to forgive those who condemned him, Jesus won the greater victory and ushered in a new way of life, not based on retaliation, but a new way of life based on the power of grace. True grace rooted in the foundation, the character of God's defiantly unconditional and eternally redeeming love, a love that conquers the grave. Now, living out of that kind of grace and love still may seem impractical to us, it just isn't practical, Chris. Look at the world we're living in. And I'll meet you there because Jesus here offers no guarantees that being gracious and loving means that that other person, our enemy, won't slap the other cheek, won't walk away with our cloak and leave us naked, won't demand we walk a third mile. But here's the thing. For Jesus it's not a matter of whether true grace and defiantly unlimited love are practical. For Jesus, living out of true grace and unconditional love is a matter of reflecting the character of who God is. For Jesus, extending true grace and choosing to love like that are not determined by the reaction and response of the other person. Extending Grace and choosing to love like that are determined by our relationship to our Heavenly Father, how God relates to and treats us. And so we must each choose. We must each choose to follow Jesus, to live the gospel in the unique and particular circumstances of our lives and relationships. What it means for me to turn the other cheek, to offer my cloak, to go the second mile, to give to those who ask of me, will likely be different from what it means for you. But what we do have in common, 
What we do have in common is the shared call and the shared means through the word and the spirit to be like Christ to others, to embody and reflect the grace and love we cherish rather than to add to the pain, suffering, and brokenness of this world. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.